Susan, butcher box to the rescue. The other night we had some friends over for dinner and we had no idea what to make. And I was like, guess what? We have a freezer full of meat. So my husband went down and thawed out some chicken from butcher box and made the best cocoa van that we've had in a long, long time. Yeah, you'd have been screwed without butcher box because I know you ain't got no time to go to the store right now. That's true. I don't have time to go shop for meat or pick out the meat or find the best quality, low priced meat. So butcher box does all of that for me. So true story, my husband's workplace has a Slack channel called Smoked Meats. And I know you can't like win a workplace conversation, but he is now because with ButcherBox, his great cuts of meat to the door, they can cook up and take photos of for his workmates. I love ButcherBox and I think other people would too. ButcherBox is the ultimate convenience, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, with curated customized box plans. It's 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork, raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. There are a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive membership deals. They also provide recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. Sign up at butcherbox.com proof and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional 20% off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com proof and use code proof to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Hey everyone, before we continue with this episode, I want to tell you about another podcast. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to watch your house burn down or be attacked by an alligator or learn that your spouse hired someone to kill you? If you're dying to know, then What Was That Like is the podcast for you. What Was That Like is filled with real stories about the most surreal experiences of people's lives. On the show, host Scott Johnson dives deep with his guests into the unbelievable situations they found themselves in, like animal attacks, plane crashes, winning the prices right, and more. The show brings you tons of completely surreal, completely true stories, all told through the lens of the person who actually experienced it. Check out some of these episodes about wild and gripping stories to gain some insight on what it was like to, say, be a professional bridesmaid or lose a leg in a shark attack. Susan, I think you'd be a really good professional bridesmaid. And you'd be really good at losing a leg in a shark attack. Oh, gee, thanks. (laughs) So if you want to hear some disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, you need to check out What Was That Like? Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know even the most bizarre tales are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to this week's Proof Sidebar. I'm here this week with Jacinda Davis and Kevin Fitzpatrick to discuss episode seven of our series on the cases of Lee Clark and Kane's story. Hey, guys. Hey, Susan. Hey, Susan. This week on Proof, we heard episode seven, Mortician's Powder. And we heard about the the autopsy evidence in the case, or lack thereof. I think this episode is, it's so frustrating because had there been an autopsy, we would have so many answers. Not a lot of what ifs, or maybe this, or this could have happened, but we'd have actual answers. Um, and because Craig Burns chose not to do an autopsy, there aren't answers. I feel pretty certain this podcast would not exist if there'd been an autopsy. We would not be here right now because a lot of this, the important issues in this case, 
were relatively trivial to determine. Again, with with medical examiners and with autopsies, there's not always going to be a definitive answer. Um, there's definitely room for ambiguity and for uncertainty. But in this case, mm, we we would have had an answer. I feel pretty certain. Even to take a step back from that, even if just the simple step of testing Brian Bowling's hands for gunshot residue, we may not be here having this discussion. Yeah, there seem to be several basic steps in an investigation that simply weren't done in this case. And if those three or four things had been done, everyone's questions would be answered and we probably wouldn't wouldn't be here. I think the one thing they did that was by the book was they did GSR tests on um, Kane Story's hands. So that was appropriate. Um, everything else investigation, not so much. If they'd done those with Brian, we'd have a lot more answers. If they'd done an autopsy, we'd have a lot more answers. If they'd conducted interviews quicker, we might have more answers. Yeah. Given that we do have something of a record, um, and by that I mean some photographs that were taken apparently by Craig Burns, the county coroner of Floyd County, what we can do when we discuss in the episode is review those and figure out what sort of determinations, what sort of uh, conclusions can be made. And there's some things we just can't know now, not without more of a record, but from what we can establish, well, first of all, let's start with the angle of the bullet issue. That was one of the state's arguments at trial was that Brian Bowling could not have killed himself because the angle was wrong for a self-inflicted shot. And to back up for a second, this whole issue of like, is the angle correct? Is it suicide or homicide, it's kind of frustrating because it doesn't really apply here, in my view. Um, this wasn't a suicide. This wasn't Brian Bowling trying to kill himself. So using like sort of the classic statistics of how shots are done, to me, seems inapplicable. No, I think that that's a good point, right? It wasn't an intentional suicide. And I, I must say, when I first saw the picture of the rod, I said, oh, it looks like, you know, like somebody could have could have shot him and then I go wait a second I don't know anything about this the science of it or how it happened so I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I think that you guys bring up some good points in the show about you know someone's trying to commit suicide the bullet goes this way or those are the people who survive it's not as easy as it sounds mm -hmm. and one of the, the claims the state really hammers on is that this idea that self-inflicted or suicide shots are straight across the head right um, because that's what the neurosurgeon Dr. Carl Herring testifies about um, but this is just not true. This is just flatly false. Any medical examiner in the country will tell you it's not how it works and that overwhelmingly, or at least the vast majority of shots are angled backwards. He says that, but then one of you points out in the show could be because the people who come to him are still alive. They're surviving. Yeah, Dr. Peters pointed that out to us. It was sort of an aha moment for me when he pointed out that the, the patients that the doc, the neurosurgeon would have seen are, are patients who are still technically alive. So he's seeing different people, whereas the, the people coming across Dr. Peter's tables, he, he works as a medical examiner, they're dead. So, so yes, the doctor who treated Brian would have seen a different um, type of injury that wasn't fatal. And most shots to the head are fatal. So he's seeing sort of the outlier group to begin with, which is why um, the question of what experts are admitted at trial and how they testify is so important. And in this case, basically it was just ignored um, because Dr. Herring is an expert, sure, in neurosurgery, um, but he is not an expert in forensic pathology or assessing homicide versus suicide for gunshot wounds. That's not what he's an expert in. And by having him testify in some, some medical examiner, mistakes like this can be made. 
Well, I think it's also important, um, Dr. Peters pointed out, like either way, it doesn't matter whether it's upward or downward angle. They could both be self-inflicted or they could both be, you know, by someone else pulling the trigger. It doesn't definitively answer the question. Plus, we don't know if it was downward or upward because we uh, the record here is so bad. Um, from doctors I've spoken to, I've heard mixed assessments of what they think is most likely going on. When you're sitting on a jury and you have an expert who you think is, is testifying or is qualified to testify on this specific thing and he tells you something, you're going to tend to believe it, right? It's being presented to you as a fact being presented by an expert. And your natural instinct should be to believe that. If you have, you know, the defense expert presenting one thing as fact, and you have the, the state's expert presenting the, the complete opposite, as a juror, how do you know who to believe, you know? It's absolutely difficult. You're right. I think that you're going to be weighing those two things, and you're presented with who's wrong or who's not qualified. Be curious to see if you guys can go back to that juror and see what he thought of this expert, and maybe talk to him about it. I don't know. And that's the question, like, did the jury even understand or realize who was qualified and who was not qualified? Because if it's not explained, it's not always obvious. And people who aren't familiar with the coroner system often tend to conflate the idea of coroner with like a medical official or medical examiner when they're not at all related. Everyone assumes that they have some expertise. And I thought it was very interesting in this episode where he's admitted to testify not as an expert, but having some kind of advanced opinion or something where he was allowed to give testimony as if he was an expert, but he's not an expert. Yeah. The judge let him testify as a lay expert, meaning he's just spouting off his opinion, which is typically not how this plays out in court and was to me an unusual choice for the judge to make. And I think error. That seems pretty extraordinary, right? That a judge would allow someone to testify who doesn't have any scientific expertise in the field. Well, it's not the only extraordinary uh, decision the judge made, as we'll hear next week, about the um, about Kane's confession, in fact, that was made to Sergeant Dallas Battle. But we also heard this episode about the issue of the phone and which hand and whether it was grasped in Brian's hand after he was shot. And one of the kind of confusing points is that, the, so the idea is that when Brian was shot, he had what is called a, cadaveric spasm, um, which is where at the moment of death, muscles that are being used or had exertion can sort of had sort of have a very rapid rigor mortis, which could be why someone who was killed will still be clutching, say, a gun if they shot themselves or something like that. And here the idea is that Brian still had the phone clutched tightly in his hand um, because of a cadaveric spasm. And one of the issues with this is that Brian wasn't dead. He survived his injury. He was transported to the hospital on life support, but he was still breathing, still had a pulse. So in the classic sense, it, it could not have been a cadaveric spasm. So what, whatever happened here, that's probably not the scenario that we're looking at. That doesn't mean he couldn't have been clutching the a phone or other object in his hand. But the idea that this was a death grip, I think it's called in, on the episode, to me doesn't fit. Whether or not he was clutching the phone in his hand or how tightly or if his fingers had to be broken to, to take to get the phone away, 
that is how Amanda's mother remembered it. And it's how Amanda remembers it. The phone was in his right hand, held so tightly that Deborah had to break his fingers to get the phone out. That is a clear memory for them. On the other hand, Kane's memory is different. Kane says the phone was in his lap. Unfortunately, there's just no documentation to say one way or the other, but Amanda and Kane both have very vivid memories of the phone being in, in different spot. Unfortunately, the only memory that's documented early on is that of Kane, who is interrogated by battle and it's recorded. And he says that the phone was in Brian's lap and doesn't think it was in either hand. Whereas the interviews with Brian's family either don't occur or don't occur until just before trial or at trial. Um, again, with the exception of Brian's mother who's interviewed in May of 97, so seven months after this. Um, and she describes the phone then being in the right hand. One issue that was never documented though is whether Brian's fingers had been broken. An autopsy would have established this very easily. That wasn't done, but there's nothing in the records just that actually happened. And it's possible what Brian Stanley recalls is it feeling like they had to break his fingers to get the phone out. But the idea of the fingers literally being broken does not seem to be based on any kind of record. On the other hand, though, when we when we spoke to Uncle Michael and Aunt Melody, they both recall Deborah talking about it that night in the hospital. So even though there's no documentation, there's no record of it, the family remembers it being an issue. And one of the reasons they started to question whether or not Kane's Russian roulette story was, in fact, the truth. Yeah, but one of the issues with that is if the phone was in his right hand, and people were aware of it right away, I still wonder why no one seems to have floated the possibility that this was not self-inflicted until two days later. It's such a crucial sort of point for everyone involved in the story, for Kane and for Amanda. And it's one of those things that we're simply never going to know exactly what happened. It's just another instance in this case where if things had been handled differently, sort of night of, we might have answers to some of those questions. I wish for everyone's sake that we knew, and it must be very difficult for everyone to, to have those memories and to be certain about it, and then to have other people contradicting you who are also certain about it. Yeah, it definitely can't be easy. And I think in this episode, we even play a clip of us talking in the car and, and Dan, the cameraman, you know, it, it's the one thing that has given us all pause about whether or not the phone was in his right hand, because if it was in his right hand, there's no way he could have pulled the trigger or he, there's no way he could have shot himself in, in the right side of the head. Um, yeah, it's not possible. If the phone's in his right hand, he can't shoot himself in the head. And I think we were all coming to that determination at various points when we were in Rome. The one thing though, knowing whether or not the phone was in his right hand still doesn't answer another question, which is, well, if it was in his right hand, who did pull the trigger? Right? It doesn't answer the question of how Kane and Lee are involved in this story, which brings us back to the contact shot. Was it a close shot or was it a shot fired from a distance if we're going with the theory that, you know, that Brian didn't pull the trigger? Yeah. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. 
visit gcu.edu. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of true crime podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In most scenarios, an expert looking at the record we have would probably conclude or almost definitely conclude that, yes, the record here is thin. We can't say for certain various aspects of the case. But what almost every expert would conclude is based on the blackened appearance of the wound, this could only have been a contact shot or near contact shot because that can only occur with the gun being relatively close within a few inches of the victim um, at the time that's fired. And if that is the case, that would categorically rule out the possibility that Lee Clark fired the shot. Um, The state's theory, the investigator's theory is that Lee Clark was outside the bedroom window, sort of leaned in, pushed aside the, the plywood board and shot through the window. And that just doesn't work here. There's no chance he could have done a contact shot in that scenario. I think that it's easier in some people's minds to put together a scenario by which, you know, Kane could have been the shooter than Lee could have been the shooter. I think after hearing some of the information you put in this episode, even experts are, are sort of coming to that determination that they find it hard to conceive of how Lee could have been someone pulling the trigger in in this situation. Well, the one wrinkle, of course, is that there is an alternative explanation for why the gunshot wound in this case appears charred and blackened. And that's because it's not due to burning, but rather due to some kind of uh, substance used by funeral directors or embalmers when they're preparing bodies. And that came from the testimony of coroner Craig Burns, who said at trial um, that the black appearance was actually because of a granulated powder, he calls it, that was applied to the wound um, to stop it from seeping blood or other fluids while at the funeral home. And he says that he actually observed it being applied uh, at trial. Although it's kind of interesting how it comes up at trial. When they're talking to him about it, he says, I believe that's a granulated powder used by embalmers. And then there's an objection from the defense who says, you can't just say what you believe. Like you have to have knowledge of this. And the judge asks him, well, do you know that's what it was? And he says, oh yeah, actually I do know that's what it was because I was there and I saw it applied, which seems like a sudden shift in his memory of how this came to be. But point being, the story of trials that this is not burning, this is mortician's powder heat that was used. And therefore this was not a contact shot. And every expert we've spoken to, nobody knows what this mortician's powder could be. No one's ever heard of any kind of powder or substance applied to a wound that turns a black charry color as it hardens. But also it's very rare for forensic experts to actually encounter something like this because they don't see bodies that have been treated by embalmers. They don't encounter that. So to them, it's a, it's a question that they've never had an answer before or never even seen um, in their work. Right, which is why they, I guess, that gives them pause to make a, a definitive answer on whether it's a contact shot or near contact shot because they're like, well, maybe something like that exists, but they say this, it's nothing we've ever heard of. 
just another bizarre turn in this case, another situation that's just perplexing. So this week we did have a question from a listener named Ramona who said, have you heard of Kids for Cash? I'm curious more and more about kickbacks after the Burns no-nos. Well, Kids for Cash was a, a scandal from Pennsylvania from a few years back where a judge was taking kickbacks from a private children's detention center to sentence kids to detention centers for offenses that normally would never put them in custody. So I think the implication here is that like something corrupt or kickbacks were involved and why there was no autopsy done. Um, and yeah, that's definitely an issue we would love to look into. Unfortunately, Floyd County has to date not produced any records relevant to that. But we do know that Brian's family is all very convinced that an autopsy was done in this case, which on the one hand could potentially be memory conflation or an, something they've come to think over the years, but they are so adamant about this and we're so certain when we talked to them that an autopsy had been done. It really makes me wonder if there's a reason for that, like, that they were told there was an autopsy. Yeah, I mean, when I first saw the photos, I thought it was from an autopsy. Like, if they saw those photos, you could see why they thought it was autopsy. Um, but uh, sometimes I wonder, like, are we, we don't know. We don't have all the records from Floyd County. So we had a, a few more questions about the sound of the gunshot in the trailer. They're kind of coming in um, after, I think it was an episode or two ago, but um, this is a message that came in from um, a listener named Kristen. She says, this bothers me. Family in a small trailer does not hear a gunshot, just a thud. Caprice on the phone does not hear the shot. I live in a small farming community with lots of empty land. Everyone has guns. I hear them going off constantly. So basically her question is how, how could they have not hear the shot? What does a gunshot sound like when placed directly on the skin? Does that silence it? And one of our experts actually addresses that very question in the, the episode that came out on Monday, where he said, yes, essentially having the gun up to the head, the head would act as a silencer. So to him, it, it was not alarming. It, it actually made sense that the family didn't recognize it as a gunshot. And we also heard this week about how Kane describes Brian's handling of the phone and how he put it down in his lap before playing the game. If that's what happened, then that would further have muffled the sound that would have been transmitted to Caprice on the other end of the line. I had never heard this concept before that if you put a gun to someone's head, it sort of acts as a little bit of a silencer. I found that to be extraordinary. I mean, not that I'm a scientist or an expert in the field. I just can't believe it, it, it had never come up in any of the stories we've worked before. So I found that particularly interesting. So one of the central figures in this story is clearly Dallas Battle. And when Jacinda first brought me this story, it was also sort of framed around this man who was the central figure. And next week, you guys are going to spend some time investigating that. Is that right? We're going to spend some time getting to know Dallas Battle. Whenever we talk to somebody and we mentioned Dallas Battle, everyone had a reaction. You know, everyone we talked to, and of course we're talking to people who are familiar with this case or somehow related to this case. So they had interactions with, with Dallas Battle, but everyone had a reaction and had something to say about him. Yeah, everyone had an opinion. Everyone had an opinion and more than opinion. Like it was a physical, emotional reaction to hearing his name. Well, that should be interesting to hear. I look forward to it. 
Thanks for listening to this week's Proof Sidebar. We're back Monday with episode 8. If you have any questions for future Sidebar episodes, don't forget to send them our way through email, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. On all social media, we are Proof Crime Pod. You can also find me on Twitter at TheViewFromLL2 and on Instagram at SOOSimp. And you can find Jacinda now on Instagram at JacindaProof. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.